0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. I'd like to introduce Angus Deaton. He's a professor of economics and international affairs at Princeton University who won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2015 for his analysis of consumption, poverty, and welfare. In 2013, Professor Deaton published a well-received book titled The Great Escape, Health, Wealth, and the Origins of Inequality. In the book, he notes that a stronger economy, GDP growth, for example, is not the only measure of a a national or individual's well-being. Uh, A more complete measure would also look at improvements in health. Uh, In his just-released paper, Mortality and Morbidity in the 21st Century, which he co-wrote, with his wife, Anne Case, who was also a professor of economics at Princeton. Uh, He delves further into these issues. So, Professor, thanks so much for joining us this morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's great to have you. Uh, Meanwhile, income inequality has become a topic of interest in recent years and has particularly been in the spotlight uh, at some point to it as a key force behind Brexit and the UK, UK leaving the EU, and even the election of Donald Trump, who promised a better deal for certain groups who were left behind. Uh, income inequality has many facets, but, uh, but one that probably is not at the forefront for most people is the enormously bad effect that it can have on the lower end of the spectrum when it comes to public health, which is what you talk about, among other things, in your book and also in, in this latest paper. Uh, Professor, could you please give us a couple of choice statistics about these uh, ill health effects in the United States among certain groups right now, groups that might surprise people.
1: Okay, but let me just preface that a little bit. Um, I really, really, really don't think this has much to do with income inequality. Um, And so, you know, I resist. There's a literature out there claiming that income inequality is bad for everything, including health. And, you know, I've argued against that um, for many years. It's not clear why, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or someone who, you know, develops Facebook or does some other thing that benefits many, many people and gets very rich in the proceeds. It's not clear why he's responsible for the poor health of people at the bottom um, who are not doing as well as he is. So, you know, that said, um, you know, I mean, that's really important, too, because you don't want to think, Otherwise, you get led to a thing where, you know, the the cure for the bad things that are happening to health is, is higher taxation and redistribution. And I don't endorse that for that purpose, at least. I might endorse it for other reasons, but that's not. So with that preface, I can Sorry. answer your question. Um, you know, what we first discovered in our first case rate right after basically 100 years um, of decline um, had turned the wrong way or at least um, flattened out, and um, that this is not happening to other groups in the U.S. It's not happening to Hispanics. It's not happening to African Americans. And it's not happening in any other um, alcohol, uh, alcoholic liver disease, um, from suicides, and from um, drug overdoses. And many of those drug overdoses are overdoses, accidental overdoses, from prescription drugs. So when people often think the health system is responsible for health, in this case the health system is responsible for killing people, um, not actually um, helping them. Um, in the more recent paper, we spent a lot of time dividing up people by whether they went to college or not, and it's like there's two Americas. out there, one of people with a B.A. and one of people without a B.A., and white non-Hispanics without a B.A., um, their mortality rates are going up faster than the average. Um, they're much more subject to opioid abuse, to suicides and alcoholic liver disease, and also. Um, heart disease, which has been a major cause of mortality decline, um, mortality from heart disease has stopped declining and has started rising. So, there's a lot of really bad stuff going on, especially for this group um, without uh, BA.
0: There is a there's a quote uh, in Atlantic Magazine uh, that where you said uh, if you had to choose between living in a poor village in India and living in the Mississippi Delta or in a suburb of Milwaukee in a trailer park, you're not sure which would be the better life. Is that right? Could you elaborate on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, no, I did say that. Um, part of this is, is um, you know, it was designed to shock a little bit, which it appears to have done. <laughs> um, and um, the part of it is to do with um, how difficult it is to measure poverty anywhere. Um, so, uh, for instance, if you, if you use something like the World Bank's, um, you know, global poverty line, which is $1.90, let's call it $2 per person per day, um, that takes no account of living in a cold climate. It, it lives, takes no account of um, um, health It takes no account kind of housing, which is incredibly important. Um, and so, you know, $2 a day in India would probably be $4 a day, you know, just to take a rough number, um, in the U.S. Um, And, you know, there's been a fair amount of documentation by the um, people who do ethnography um, that there are actually quite substantial numbers of people in the U.S. living on very, very small um, amounts of income. There's some dispute as to how much they get in government benefits, um, partly because the surveys may underreport what they actually receive, but partly because some of those benefits are in kind, and, you know, you can't use Medicaid um, to put food on the table or to pay the rent. Um, so, and then there's just a lot of other things, the, the social life. Um, in an Indian village, in some Indian villages at least, may be more protective um, than it is in some places in America. And then, you know, people always say, well, um, people, if you just look at infant mortality, you look at health, we do much better. And that's not even clear. So that, you know, one of the things I noticed, noted was that there's certainly counties in Appalachia where life expectancy is lower than it is in Bangladesh.
0: This is uh, probably coming as a a shock and surprise to some Americans that would be hearing about this. Um, I just wanted to get back uh, to something you said at the outset because I actually was going to note what you said, is uh, is that a lot of these problems in the U.S., some might suspect that the cause would be attributed to slowly growing, stagnant, and even declining incomes, but that you found, quote, that it cannot be It cannot provide a comprehensive explanation. Rather, this has to do with a, quote, cumulative disadvantage over life in the labor market, in marriage and in child outcomes and in health, triggered by progressively worsening labor opportunities at a time uh, of entry for whites with low levels of education, which meaning a a college without a college degree. So it's interesting. So this is where, I mean, this is where you're making that that distinction between it's not caused by income inequality per se, but it's this this cumulative disadvantage. Well, wait a minute.
1: Where did you get the in, the inequality? You you said income in there. I mean, inequality depends on the top two. Mm-hmm. So you can reduce inequality by hurting the rich, and that's not anything obviously to do with this.
0: Okay. Right.
1: So. So let's use the word income.
0: right. Uh, Okay, but I did want to focus on this idea of it's it's a cumulative disadvantage over time. Yeah, absolutely. Could you elaborate on that a little
1: bit? Yeah, well, this is something that our sociologists have been telling us for a long time, and we probably had not been listening until recently, which is that the consequences of the labor market are um, very profound on other aspects of people's lives. So that um, one of those things is that if you're a young man and you, you get a job, in the old days, um, you could get a job, and you could expect your wage rate to increase steadily over time as you acquired skills and you acquired experience and tenure on the job. Um, and you could walk into any you know job starting at maybe fifteen or twenty dollars an hour with General Motors or something, and you could build a middle class life out of that. And you would get married, and then you would have kids, and um, you know by the time you were in your fifties. You're thinking about having grandchildren, and your life has unfolded in a fairly positive way, both materially and spiritually. Um, but now what's happening is those jobs progressively gone away. Um, and so you get a situation in which these people are, you know, they come out of high school, they don't get such a good job. Um, lots of jobs that offer are sort of crappy jobs. Um where there's no real commitment by the employer or the employee, and now your girlfriend refuses to marry you. Um, and, you know, that's something sociologists have been saying for a really long time, that when, you know, jobs go away, um, so does marriage. Um, one of the things that has changed, of course, is, you know, 50 years ago, if your girlfriend wouldn't marry you, you didn't move in with her and have children. And that is what is happening now. So that's a sort of change in social more as about what's acceptable um, and what's not. So there's a big rise in cohabitation um, so that they move in, they live together, and they have a kid. And then some better opportunity comes along and the girlfriend says, okay, you know, I don't like you so much anymore. I've got a guy here who's earning you know, 50 or not 7 um, and I'm going to move in with him instead, so then you'd lose your kid if you're the man, uh, move out. The kid may have, you know, two or three dads um, by the time they're a teenager. Um, some of those dads may be very unsatisfactory as fathers, and the ones that are good fathers, they get lost too. So very bad for the kids, um, terrible for the fathers. Um, not too great for the mothers either. So you reach your 50s, you haven't got all those experience and tenure and skill bonuses that used to go. You've had a series of, um, you know, not very permanent jobs. And in your mid-50s, you get a midlife crisis, but it's terrible because you don't have all the support um, for marriage and everything else. So the labor market is the fundamental thing. But there's no short-term correlation between, you know, income, earnings, and people's health. Uh,
0: you do. Uh, I mean, one of the interesting things is the the uh, the psychology behind all of this, because you you talk about you write about this idea of despair that the the, the groups you're just talking about experience over over a long period. So it's that cumulative thing. Uh, and I guess that, is it correct to say that this is part of what leads to the um, the use of uh, overuse, I should say, of alcohol and opioids and, and other unhealthy practices, uh, obesity and that sort of thing, which then translates into the um, declining uh, statistics on mortality. Is that right? I,
1: th- I think that's right. And, um, you know, if I had a setback in that, you know, I was expecting a pay raise and didn't get it, or I was in an occupation where my employer could signal his displeasure with me by cutting my wages. You know, I might be really disappointed, but I don't really think I'm going to kill myself. Um, I think that if, at the age of 50, I lose my job or I have a setback like that, and I look back and, you know, I don't know my kids anymore, I may have a kid who's drug-addicted too, um you know, then life gets really, really, really tough. Um, I also think, and this is something we haven't looked at really seriously in the data yet, that, you know, if you're switching out of these long-term jobs into these more casual jobs, you're more likely to get injured. Um, There's a lot, huge um, increase in pain reporting, Um, and some of that pain... You know, if, if you just say, Do you feel pain? And people say, yes, you think, okay, you know, maybe they're making it up. Um, but if they report sciatic pain, which requires them to say, you know, it's shooting down their leg, um, I don't think people make that up so much. And you get a big increase in that, and you get a big increase in neck pain, and so on. So, you know, there's an epidemic of pain underlying this, too. And I think, you know, the most plausible story... That the sociologists and others have been writing about. Andrew Cherlin has a couple of terrific books on this. Um, is that you know people's lives are coming apart?
0: That's really interesting because uh, sometimes when uh, when people talk about unemployment, which has gotten better recently, but was you know since the financial crisis there were you know it took a long time for things to to get right. to this point, and they'll talk about oh well you know more people are going out on disabilities, kind of hinting that they're kind of gaming the system a little bit, and that's hurting the employment stats. So what you're saying argues exactly against that idea.
1: Well, exactly against that is too strong. I mean, I don't think we would ever claim that there aren't people who take advantage of the system. Um, But uh, just two things to say about that is this upsurge in pain There's a very nice piece in the Journal of Economic Perspectives by Jeff Liebman who looks at the the increase in disability. A lot of it is just demographic, you know, the the changing composition of of the workforce. So even if disability rates are not changing, you get a big increase in disability. And much of the residual is in exactly these sort of um, issues like pain and, you know, nonspecific soft tissue things that are not like a broken leg or something. And our work would suggest that important parts of that are real, as you just suggested. Another thing that's worth noting is disability systems in Europe are much, much more generous um, than the ones we have here. And in particular, in a lot of European countries, you get a doctor's certificate in your mid-50s saying, you know, you suffer from intermittent headaches or something and you can retire on something not far away from what you were earning before. And there was a time, certainly, when average retirement ages in one or two countries were actually lower than the minimum (laughs) possible retirement age. So there were just a huge number of people with disability. And, you know, that's clearly to do with having an overgenerous disability system. Um, But... You know, you don't see these people killing themselves either quickly or slowly in Germany or in France or in the U.K. Um, in the way that we see in, in, Britain, in
0: the U.S. Uh, I, that's, um, again, the, the the psychology, I think, behind what you write about in this idea of despair is uh, I found, I think, in the latest paper especially really interesting because there's, there seemed to be a distinction that it's this cumulative effect that we've discussed but it's you know this idea that it's not just that someone looks back and 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 understands that they weren't able to have the life economically speaking at least uh that they were hoping to have or they expected to have when they were younger it's that they aren't having even a life as good as their parents, or in some cases, even their parents. And it, it, it's that realization that is kind of crushing for them. Is that is that right? Did I interpret that right?
1: You could certainly put it that way, yeah. yeah. And, you know, Raj Shetty has a paper showing, his colleagues have a paper showing that um, it, it's right about these generations where that switch happens. So that um, if you were in my cohort, you know, if you are born in 1940, 1945, Um, something like 90% of these people were better off than their parents by age 30. Whereas if you were born in 1960, which is the sort of people we're looking at here, um, uh, by only uh, less than two-thirds of them were better off than their parents at age 30. And it's probably gotten worse since then, I mean, in that, you know, because the experience premium or the return to experience in the labor market for people with only a high school degree, has fallen so rapidly, um, the gap between them and their parents uh, is probably widening with age.
0: And um, maybe an especially difficult thing to live with when uh, there's almost a conventional wisdom, I guess that's going to have to change, that suggests that each generation, sh- you know, we expect it to be better off than, than the one that went before. So when, right. that, do- when that doesn't happen, it's really it's really disrupting, you know, sort of foundational things that people have have thought about.
1: Well, that, that's certainly one hypothesis, and I, it's plausible, but um, there are other hypotheses that, um, you know, there, there were, again, this is going back to some of the stuff that Andrew Cherland has written about, that, you know, the working-class family was one in which the man went to work in manufacturing, well, stayed at home and looked after the children, and that it was very much the basis for self respect and for meaningfulness and for understanding yourself in your life and that may be more important than what your dad
0: earned um, though that could be important too um, just to to turn a little bit to the ideas of what what led to this cumulative or spiral down for for people economically. Uh, their jobs aren 't as good because because why we know that or we think we know that uh, globalization has hurt the labor market here to some degree. Uh, a lot of people would subscribe to that idea what What other things are contributing to uh, the more difficult labor market for folks in the in the cohorts that are having such problems as you write about
1: well i 'm not the best person to ask about that, and the conversation you had before with um with Bob Schiller and Jeremy Siegel, talked about some of those issues. Um, You know, there's some mixture of robots and globalization. um, And just, or robots is not all of it, because there's the skill bias technical progress, too, and, you know, the the gap that opened up between people with and without an education. Um, So, I mean, my own view is that these people have probably been hurt more by technical progress um, and by the upskilling of jobs, um, by the replacement the replacement um, by um, technologies that don't require so many people. Um, but globalization has certainly played a part, too. I mean, you know, there's a much larger effective supply of labor in the United States, and that has certainly contributed to pushing to downward pressure on wages. Um, so, it, you know, for the purpose of this, um, for these deaths, I'm not sure it matters all that much, um, which of those, it certainly matters politically because people identify scapegoats like immigrants or globalization um, rather than the technical change. Technical change is much harder to think about because, and it's true for economists too, I mean, you could build a wall right in the U.S., but that wouldn't stop technical change. It might slow it down. Um you know, we could turn ourselves into Albania, um, but still people would be thinking of smarter ways of doing things, and, you know, we'd still have these
0: issues. You have talked about, uh, you have talked about, in, in other venues, about the, the idea of inequality and uh, rent-seeking by companies yes. in the U.S. Could you, ta- could you discuss that a bit, please?
1: Well, it's just that, you know, like a lot of people, I've been trying to ask myself the question, what exactly is wrong with inequality? You know, so people are jumping up and saying inequality is a really terrible thing and the question is why um, why is it such a terrible thing and you know I think I've made a little progress <laughs> inside my own head I'm not sure I'm persuading other people um, but you know that's what I take as the European view um, um, which is um, You know, the one I grew up on um, growing up in Britain, you know, the first seminar I ever attended in my life was Tony Atkinson um, talking about his 1970 paper on the measurement of inequality. And that approach to the world is what philosophers have subsequently rechristened prioritarianism. And that just means that there's sort of declining social marginal utility of income so that people who have a lot of money um, are not as worth much at the margin for public policy as people um, at the bottom, and so in that sense, inequality is sort of inherently evil because if you have more money than I do, taking money away from you and giving it to me will make the world a better place, subject to subject to um, incentive constraints um, of you know that we take too much away from you there won 't be anything left for me. Um, And, you know, that being the European tradition, that's the problem that Merlees got the Nobel Prize for solving, which is the sort of optimal income tax and so on. Um, And there's a lot of economic theory um, centered around that set of ideas. I think Piketty's book is sort of based on that, that it's just a scandal that the rich are rich because that money could be much better used by poor people. Um, I've come to not believe that. Um, and uh, partly from reading um, various philosophers and other people. I think that if you've got two people, one of whom is richer than the other, and neither of them is in distress in any way, I just don't see why it makes the world a better place to bring them closer together, um, for instance. Put another way, if you get rich and it doesn't do me any harm at all, any material harm, or any harm in any other way. You know, if you get rich and then nullify my vote by lobbying Congress to close down the schools I depend on, that's clearly a bad thing. But it just in and of itself, um, there's a nice little book by the philosopher Henry Frankfurt, for instance, um, arguing this, and I think it's quite convincing. I just don't think inequality by itself is bad. Um And that puts me at odds with a lot of economists, a lot of people on the left, a lot of liberals. Um, But that leaves. That doesn't mean inequality that we have is a good thing. And the issue is if, instrumentally, um, inequality is bad. So, you know, if someone gets very, very rich and other people don't, that person might use their wealth to hurt those people. It might not even be in an income space. So it might be, you know, what I said about schools, or they might undermine the health system, or they might nullify your votes, and um, that Congress only rich listens to rich people. And, you know, that's a concern that goes back to the Greeks, which is that rich people might effectively take over the state. And at the worst, enslave um, poor people or have poor people act entirely in their interests. So that's the sort of thing that I think is really bad, uh, but inequality. And you asked about rent-seeking, and that's sort of part of it. I think a lot of the inequality that we get in the U.S. today comes through people seeking special favors um, from the government by lobbying, um, by getting special deals, getting the rules changed. A lot of that's going on now. Where supposedly having a bonfire of regulations, but a lot of these regulations are to prevent um, rich people stealing stuff from poorer people or from the nation as a whole, which is sort of the same thing. So if you just contrast what Mark Zuckerberg did with rent-seeking, I mean, I think, as I said elsewhere, it, it's um, you know I think it's okay to get rich by making things. It's not okay to get rich by Taking things by theft, as it were.
0: Could you give an, an example of, of the rent seeking? I think uh, I've I've read uh, something you mentioned about the health healthcare system, and, and that's interesting because it ties back to the ill health effects that that we were talking about earlier, in, in certain certain cohorts in the U.S.
1: No, absolutely, and I think that the healthcare sector is a very one of my friends you know, the uh, explained that the healthcare sector is a giant bait ball. <laughs> which everyone is feeding off. And, you know, uh, according to various calculations, we're spending about a trillion a trillion dollars a year more on health care than we would need to um, relative to other countries. Um, and what's more is our life expectancy is among the lowest of all of those countries and is actually falling. So... <laughs> it's not clear what we're spending that trillion dollars on. Or it is clear what we be spending that trillion dollars on. A lot of people are getting very rich off that trillion dollars. And, you know, there's lots of rent-seeking by pharmaceutical companies, by device manufacturers, by hospitals, and all the rest of it, um, that maintains a system in which they get enormous sums of money and deliver very poor health care.
0: So... Uh To connect back to the groups we were talking about earlier, the uh, middle-aged whites with lower-level educations that are seeing mortality drop and so forth, what could be done to remedy that? What what could help improve their lot?
1: Well, that's a really tough one. I mean, uh, you could... You know, we think the opioids are a terrible scandal that should never have happened. So, you know, the mass overprescription of these drugs has killed a lot of people and perhaps reduced some pain, perhaps not. Um, so, you know, there's a sort of low-hanging fruit there, though that is hard enough, um, which is to do something about that uh, and to put more pressure on docs not to prescribe these things, um, except under very carefully controlled circumstances, which is what happens in other countries. Um, In Britain, for instance, opioids are rarely prescribed, outside of hospitals, for instance, where they can be controlled and watched. Um, Of course, that won't stop people turning to cheap street heroin or switching from you know, legal fentanyl to
0: illegal fentanyl. Right, well, that was kind of my next question, which was, you know, the, the underlying despair that we discussed earlier, which leads to... Yeah, what do ju- you do about that? Not just of opioids, but the alcoholism, the high suicide rates that, that, that are outlined in your studies. Uh, what what can be done?
1: Well, nothing very quickly, because if you believe the cumulative disadvantage story, you know, you could turn off the tap of current disadvantage, but the remnants of all those years are still going to be there. Um, And so it's something you'd only chip away at. Um, There's a bit, uh, I mean, the obvious place to look is in education. Um, But, you know, I'm somewhat of a skeptic of just saying if we could only educate everybody. You know, if everybody had a BA, we'd all be okay. I mean, everybody doesn't want a BA, and also it's not like The BA is just like um, a new drug or something, which everyone should have. Um, You know, the people who have BAs are different in all sorts of other ways than people who don't have BAs. Now, that said, I mean, I think there's good work out there showing that lots of people who could benefit from a university degree are not getting it. And so to the extent that our school systems are failing kids and bright kids who could get out of this are not getting out of that. That's certainly something we should work on. I mean, some would argue for training programs that look more like German training programs. But, um, you know, and it's certainly true that when you talk to CEOs, they complain all the time about the educational system not generating the sort of workers they need. Um, I worry a little bit about that because with all this technical change, the workers we need today are not necessarily the workers we need tomorrow. but you know it might be better to train them up in something for which there is a demand right now so you know maybe community colleges and other places could pay a larger part in that um th-
0: a couple a couple last things before we go uh, in your book, you have this, I think, really interesting analogy. And, you know, you, you make the point that income inequality, is, it, it, it's kind of a dance. So if one group gets ahead, that's good. They made progress. They're blazing the trail. They're showing others the way to improve their life. And as long as there's a way for uh, the groups that weren't involved in that initial spurt ahead to, to move up, then that's progress. That That's a good thing. But I think you liken it to... Uh, a situation with miners underground who are trying to escape and they dig the tunnel and they escape the, uh, the let's say, um, the, the not wonderful world where, where you know, health care is not so good and the economy is not so good and they find a way to make things better. But then they can either turn around and lend a hand and, and bring others up or they can fill in the tunnel behind them so right. that they maintain their, their, you know, their status Yep. Uh, th- and that seemed to be like a really key point of your book and the difference. Uh, could you talk about that idea a little bit?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, that, that's why hey, you don't want to take too simplistic view of inequality. That a lot of inequality is actually is progress. And to be against that sort of inequality is to be against progress and to what philosophers do call leveling down. You know, let's keep ourselves all miserable because there won't be any inequality then. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you have to be very, very... Because the guys who dig the tunnels, who are part of the fellowship and who help us escape, they can very easily feel like it might be a good idea to fill in the tunnels behind them and change from one end to the other. So, you know, the entrepreneurs in uh, Silicon Valley, that we all admire so much. If you don't watch them like hawks, they're going to turn into rent seekers five minutes later
0: um, to protect their innovation. Uh, So do you think that we have too much... uh Filling in the tunnel behind us in in this country today,
1: yeah, I think well, you know that's what we have antitrust and things for. We have to enforce that stuff, and I get the sense that there's not been a lot of enforcement of that in recent years
0: uh one last thing uh, just to bring it round to uh, something immediate, which is that uh in uh, somewhere along the way, I read the uh, a quote where you noted that the there's a correlation. Uh, between, a high correlation between those counties that are suffering the kinds of problems we talked about earlier with with health and mortality and uh, the counties that voted for Donald Trump, that there's a very high correlation showing so, a level of dissatisfaction that led to, let's say, a reaction similar perhaps to what we saw in Britain with Brexit. Is, is that correct?
1: Yeah, and the various people... The Economist even had a picture, you know, and there's various people in the U.S., it's a little too easy because you can put almost any, any dysfunction on the right-hand side, and it predicts the Trump vote. Okay. Um, the correlation is usually about 0. 0.4, or the, yeah, correlation is about 0. 0.4. Which is very so, high. You know, there's a strong relationship yeah. there, but you could put obesity, or you could put people dying, or you could put, you know, all that sort of stuff. I see. So it's not really a great mystery.
0: Thanks again. Maybe we can, uh, maybe we can revisit with you sometime in the future when, when these issues come up. Okay, great. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.